0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2009. Today's episode is titled, How to Prosper in a Depression. Everyone wants to prosper, and too often we view prosperity as an indicator of success and freedom. Many commit themselves to work hard to become wealthy and gain the freedom to do what they want to do, when they want to do it. In today's economic calamity, which many regard as a recession if not a depression, financial prosperity is even more challenging than normal. True riches are wisdom from God, that is, the ability to live well in God's universe. Remember, God created everything, including all the rules for His universe. Wisdom is the ability to discern and do the will of God or to live well in God's universe. This can be done even during economic disaster. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, How to Prosper in a Depression.
1: I'm excited to uh, present uh, Winning in a Depression, Seven Critical Keys to Prosperity in Hard Times. Pray that this is a fruitful time for you. I think it's a timely conversation given the, the state of affairs in the United States. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about the signs of the times. If you've been reading uh, the news recently, you're aware that the Chicago Tribune has filed bankruptcy, and that was courtesy of Mr. Sam Zell, who um, about a year or so ago uh, did an LBO, which is a leveraged buyout, and put a bunch of debt on the a, on a Tribune when he bought it along with other assets. And, of course, in this economy, debt, is, uh, debt can be death, deadly because... Lenders expect to be serviced, get their interest payments, regardless of whether or not you have the money to make those payments. And so we have a, a situation here where bankruptcy is, was the inevitable result of that. And my contention is that that is a sign of presumption. In fact, any time you take on debt for any purpose, to some degree that's presumption. The presumption is that you will have the resources to pay back that debt. Obviously, there are degrees of presumption. Uh, presumption in the case of an LBO is a much more uh, aggressive, uh, risky presumption than the presumption of taking on a conservative mortgage. And so presumption is always a challenge for all of us, but we need to be, be very aware In in, uh, in good times, the temptation to take on debt is great because we can't see the bad times coming. And so Mr. Zell has been a... Um, the father here of this bankruptcy here for the Chicago Tribune because of his own presumption. Other things that are going on, other signs of the time, are greed. If you've been following the news again, you you found out about Bernie uh, Madoff's Ponzi scheme where he's basically been able to to steal $50 billion of investor capital over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And uh, this is a man that was highly respected and regarded on Wall Street, he was even at one time the chairman of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. So he had um, significant uh, credibility. And for this to happen, it's been a total shock. Well, obviously, the driving agenda behind his, uh, his Ponzi scheme was greed. Another sign of the time is corruption. And if you've been, again, while following the news, you've heard about the governor of Illinois and his desire, his effort to sell the Senate seat to the highest bidder. Probably the most disturbing thing to me about that whole scenario is the fact that uh, he's not really denying that he tried to do this. What he seems to be denying that it is that it is wrong. His moral standards are such that uh, he doesn't see anything wrong with selling a Senate seat. So this is going to be an interesting scenario to see how it plays out. And um, it's interesting to see how our president-elect has been connected, and he's trying very hard to not be connected to this situation. So corruption is definitely a problem in our time. It's a definitely a sign of our times. And then we have self-serving. Uh, if you've been following uh, Merrill Lynch and the investment banking companies and uh, what they've been going through, uh, you know that Merrill Lynch is in the midst of being acquired by Bank of America, uh, that beat going Bankrupt. Uh, and, in the process of going through all of this economic calamity over the past year, the uh, CEO of Merrill Lynch decided that he was due a ten million dollar bonus, and he has uh, requested that the board pay him that bonus. I think the board is utterly stunned that he would request this in a year when when it, the economy is so tough and the and the company nearly went broke. I guess he he views himself as somewhat of a savior for the company and therefore. Um, he thinks he's worth this, but this illustrates another phenomenon going on in our culture, and that is an increasing gap between the compensation of management and workers. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing workers' compensation uh, limited and, and CEO compensation almost unlimited. Another sign of the time is hedonism. Uh, hedonism is a worship of pleasure, it's a worship of fun, it's a worship of entertainment. Uh, increasingly we're seeing the pay of entertainers and athletes go up. Uh, For example, Tiger Woods, uh, I believe this is a 2007 number, but his uh, earnings for the year were over $100 million for playing golf. That's just a phenomenal, phenomenal amount of money. You say, why in the world could somebody make that kind of money? Well, the only way you can make money playing golf like that is people love the pleasure and the satisfaction of watching a player like that. Then you have idolatry. The Washington State Capitol building uh, has got a display, and in this display it says there are no gods, no devils, no angels. Religion is but myth and superstition that hardens the heart and slaves mind. What this is is a a projection of the atheist of their worldview, and uh, we're regarding that as acceptable and okay, and we just put it on display in a Capitol building. And finally, we have no accountability. Uh, Those of you that have been uh, watching YouTube and some of the videos out there, you may have noticed a video in which President-elect Obama has uh, made his comments relative to whether or not scripture has any relevance in public policy. And in this video he mocks scripture and basically says there's no place for scripture in public policy. So we've elected a president Who's going to look to some other source other than the scripture for public policy? I have no idea what that source is. I would presume that it's probably his own opinion. So he's going to be ruling basically based on his own opinion, not based on any kind of biblical standards at all. And that's going to show up in things like social issues, homosexuality and abortion. Those kinds of agendas are going to be promoted. It's going to show up in entitlement issues like health care which probably will wind up eventually being socialized in this country. And if you want to find out how well that's worked, uh, just check with the Canadians. And it's going to show up with our national debt. Right now our national debt is in excess of $10 trillion and climbing. By the time we get through with all these bailouts that we're probably going to do, it'll probably be over $11 trillion. And according to the national debt clock, that's something over $86,000 a family. So I expect all of you at the end of this session to uh, write a check for your family's portion of the national debt. Now, where is all this taking us? Well, let's just take a look at some of the stats. Let's look at unemployment, the Fed funds rate, and economic growth rate. These are three simple stats, and let's just see what's happening. Now, the unemployment rate is a measure of the unemployment in this country. And the data basically comes from uh, new applications for unemployment insurance. You know, unemployment benefits only last for a short period of time, so to some degree this is not a good measure of unemployment. It's, it's probably a conservative measure uh, in, in, this, in that understates unemployment. But uh, basically, uh, the, the, the last year we were around 5 percent unemployment, and uh, that's considered to be well, a little bit high, but not too bad. Then you have the, the Fed funds rate. Fed funds rate is a measure of what the banks will charge each other to loan money to each other. and it's a measure of how, how aggressive they may be in loaning money to you and to other people to buy cars and, and uh, improve their homes and do uh, credit lines for businesses and fixed asset loans for businesses, those kinds of things. So typically uh, you know a, a rate of you know three to four percent is a nice rate. A year ago, it was a little over 4%. And then we have the economic growth rate. This is a measure overall of our, of our economy and whether or not it's growing. And in God's universe, healthy things grow. So we want a growth rate. And typically, the Federal Reserve likes to keep it around 2 to 3%. So a year ago, it was about 2%. Now, where is it in 2008? Well, in 2008, unemployment has jumped dramatically. It's over 8%, and some people argue that it's probably closer to 10%, or will be 10% by the end of the year. The Fed funds rate has dropped like a rock. And, uh, in fact, it I think uh, prior to doing this chart, it was around um, 1% or a little under 1%. It's now, I think, almost at zero. They had another Fed funds rate drop this week. So it's essentially gone to zero, which says that that it's easy to get money, but yet money is not flowing into the economy. And finally, the economic growth rate for 2008 is forecast to be around a negative 4%. So that's why the economists are saying now that we are in a, in a recession, if not a depression. So what is all this saying to us? What are the signs of the times and these, these statistics saying to us? Well, what they're saying to us is that sin has economic consequences. And that's hard for us to get because most of us don't think of business in terms of spiritual reality. We think of business as a place we go to make money. We don't see that in the context of, of what is God saying and what is God doing through, through the economic indicators. But let's just take a look at how God responds to sin. Look at this text in Ezekiel. It says, Then they, that is Israel, will know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. My people come to you, that is to Ezekiel, as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them you are nothing more than one who sings with love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well for they hear your words but they do not put them into practice. Now that is the reality I think that is in effect in the United States today that we are just plain uh, church we are a religious people we're going through the the motions we have a lot of form but virtually no substance and so when you have that going on we need to understand that there will be economic consequences to this rejection of God. And God intends to use this to get, it, get our attention. He's made the land a desolate waste because of the detestable things that we've done. Our sin will produce economic calamity. So that's where we are. We are experiencing this, and uh, it's going to be a, a, major, a major ongoing problem for us. So we've got to decide, how is it that we're going to, to handle this? How are we going to respond to the judgment that we're under now because of our sin? So what I want to do tonight is I want to give you seven keys to prosperity in the midst of economic calamity. The first key will be we'll deal with being surprised and the fact that blank is not surprised. The next key is will deal with reality. The third key will be a warning about what you worship. The fourth key is about the Lord. The fifth key is do something as unto the Lord. The sixth key is to keep your something open. And the seventh key is to ask. So we're going to fill in these blanks over the next 30 minutes and uh, give you some insight, hopefully, into how to prosper in this difficult economic time. So the first key is God is not surprised. You know, it's it's easy for us to think uh, that, that God kind of acts and functions like we do. We kind of think that, well, an event like flipping a coin is a random event. And uh, we don't know how a coin flip's going to come out. Uh, We know statistically if you flip a coin 100 times, probably it'll come out about half the time heads and half the the time tails. But you can't necessarily predict on any coin flip how it's going to come out reliably. You have a 50-50% chance of knowing how it's going to come out. Well, God knows 100%. He's never surprised. He knows exactly how every coin flip's going to happen. Because this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is Proverbs 16, verse 33. So we need to remember that God is in charge of his universe. He is executing his will. He's accomplished his purpose, and he has a plan and a purpose. He has an agenda that he wants to accomplish. Look at this text in Isaiah 46. It says this, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. That means that Allah is not God. That means the Hindu gods are not God. That means that the humanists that worship themselves, they are not God. You know, there's no other God except the God of the Bible. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. I want you to just notice that God is in charge of his universe. He will do what he wants to do. And he will get so specific and so intentional and so strategic that he would pick a bird to do something. He says, From the east, I summon a bird of prey. Or from a far off land, he summons a man. He doesn't talk about men. He doesn't talk about armies. He talks about a man, one man to go fulfill his purpose. Now what he's saying here, I think, is that he is very specific and individual and personal about how he deals in his universe, which means that you and I, we have the opportunity to be part of his plan, and that is to do what he's put us here to do. And so we've got to discern that if we're going to be able to do it. If we don't discern it, Then we're probably going to be pushed aside to some degree because he'll find somebody else to do what's been assigned to us. So our challenge is to line up, to submit, to humble ourselves, and to get in line with what he wants to do and do his bidding. And then we will prosper because he does fund his will. The second key God is in reality. God is in reality. Now, this, is, this is a very challenging thing. All of us have circumstances. Some of us may be, um, have what, what, what we consider bad circumstances, difficult circumstances. We may have marriage issues. We have children issues, job issues, money issues, career issues, neighbor issues, all kinds. Of, we may have church issues. Whatever issues are, there are the circumstances of your life. Well, God is not surprised by your circumstances. He's absolutely orchestrated your circumstances so that he can do what he wants to do through you. And what he wants to do is he wants to transform you. And he uses these processes, these processes of life to do that. And his agenda is to take you to maturity in Christ. And that's what life is all about. And one of the great examples of how he do how He does this, how he trades up, is found in the book of Job. Job, of course, was a very wealthy man, a very highly regarded man, a very respected man, and arguably a very righteous man. There was none like him. And so God granted Satan the privilege and the opportunity to test the very best man on earth. And so that's what Satan did. And for the first 38 chapters of the book, you, you see Job... Uh, defending himself, being angry with God, angry with his friends, cursing the day of his birth. All of this is human response to his very difficult situation. And let there be no doubt, it was a very difficult situation. Imagine losing all of your wealth and basically all of your family. I mean, that is a very, very hard thing. Then on top of that, losing your health. There's not much, I doubt there's any of us on this call that could put, that could hold a candle to Job in terms of a trial, in terms of difficult circumstances. He had very difficult circumstances, but God was in it to do something. And this is what it says in Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is Job 42, verses 1 through 6. And what I want to show you here is is this verse this uh phrase that says my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you that is the transformation process god took job's circumstances and and transformed him into a more mature man job said i had heard of you now i see you seeing is a more mature sense than hearing it's a more profound sense a deeper sense if you can see something you can gain more understanding than if you just hear it and so that's the picture here is that God is always transforming he's trading up he takes circumstances and trades circumstances for maturity and one of the most common ways that he does it is with money I was talking with a client this week and uh, they have made a uh, a real estate gamble they Borrowed a bunch of money on a real estate transaction, and now the economy's soft and things are not going well. And so they're in the midst of learning a lot of lessons. And I said, see what God's doing here? He's trading worldly wealth for true wealth. Worldly wealth is money. True wealth is wisdom and maturity in Christ. Worldly wealth does not transcend death. True wealth transcends death. God is always into going from the temporary to the permanent, from that which is uh, has lo- less value to that which has more value. And that's how he works in reality. So whatever circumstances you have, God is there wanting to mature you. And so a key to dealing with difficult times is allowing the maturity of God to happen in your life. The third key. Is what is the real risk that we're in right now? The real risk is not your circumstances. It's not losing your job, it's not having money to pay the, the mortgage, not losing your house or your car, or not you know having to file bankruptcy. Those aren't the real risk. those are just circumstances. The real risk is idolatry. Now notice what he, Exodus chapter twenty says, "You shall have no other gods before me." Those of you that may be Oprah fans, then you probably recognize that it was this phrase right here that John was a jealous God that turned Oprah off. That made her turn away from God. Oprah is not a, a, a supporter of the God of the Bible. She is an enemy of the cause of Christ, and it's because she's rejected the revelation of God in the Bible, specifically this revelation that God is a jealous God. And because he's a jealous God, he's saying, you shall not worship anything else. In fact, there's no reason to because there are no other gods. There is only one God. And Oprah has become a pluralist and she's become a universalist, which is why she is contrary to the word of God and her thinking and her worldview. So the great, probably the greatest temptation we have today in, in idolatry is the worship of money. Notice Luke sixteen thirty thirteen, which says, "No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other." You cannot serve both God and money. You have to make a choice. I can't tell you how many people I've run into in life that think they can serve God and money. In fact, they rationalize their worship of money by saying. I want to be wealthy so I can give to kingdom causes. And that's just a cover for greed. It's a cover for idolatry. And yet we allow that kind of thinking and those phrases to go unchecked and unchallenged in most Christian circles. We need to become very fanatical about rejecting idolatry in every form, particularly the worship of money, but also our our worship of form without substance, which is the Pharisee approach to Christianity. When you see people, and we need to look in the mirror very carefully here. When you look at yourself and you look at others, to the degree that we are not submitted to the word of God and to the revelation of Jesus Christ in our lives is the degree that idolatry is is working in us. And we need to be very aggressive about about purging idolatry out of our lives. That is a real risk because that idolatry brings judgment. Notice again Exodus 20 where it says that God is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, your sin of idolatry will have implications to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's a sobering thing. Most people want to bless their, their heirs. Well, you want to bless your heirs, then you need to worship the one true God and reject any temptation to idolatry, to worshiping anything else. Do not worship church. Do not worship another person. Do not worship money. Do not worship power and influence. Do not worship your job. Do not worship a title. Do not worship your car, your house, your lake house, vacations, fun, entertainment. Whatever it is that that draws your interest, you've got to be fanatical about purging that idolatry out of your life. And that will bring blessing to you and to everybody that comes in contact with you, and it will bring blessing to your family. The fourth risk is, or the fourth key here, is the only security is in God. There is no security in this life. Uh, A few years ago, I had a pastor come to me from a church, and in this particular church, there had recently been a, um, a termination of one of the other staff pastors, and it had been carried out at the directive of the elders, which was not a normal thing. Well, so the, uh, the staff pastors left, uh, all of a sudden they got a reality check. If the elders would step up and fire one pastor, maybe they'd fire another pastor. And so all these staff pastors that were left started getting real insecure about their jobs. And so I wound up at lunch one, of the day, one day talking with this, this one staff pastor, and he's going on and on about how insecure he feels and how, he, how concerned he is about his lo- the longevity of his job. That's so we wound up in a discussion about security. And I asked him, you know, well, what is security? Why do you think you're secure? And he started thinking about it a little bit, and he reflected back on when he worked in the marketplace. And he realized that in the marketplace, it wasn't very secure there. And then he realized, you know, I'm just thinking like I was in the marketplace. I've forgotten the fact that God is my security. It's not the marketplace. It's not my job. It's not my bank account, how much money I have, whether or not I can get unemployment benefits or whether or not I have another opportunity. Those things are not my security. Only God is my security. I said, that's right. And as as long as you understand that he is your security, there's never a concern about whether or not you're going to be released. Your only concern needs to be to do what you've been called to do and do it well, because God is your provider. Line up with God and he will meet your needs. That's what Matthew 6, 33 says. And look at some other texts of scripture here. Matthew 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. How about this one in Haggai 2, 8? The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. In other words, God doesn't lack for resources. Have you ever, ever thought about that reality that you know, we have, many of us, you know, when we were, if somebody were to ask us if what our problems are, we might say, well, we need more money. And that's interesting. We, we have this sense that we need more money. But yet we, we are related to a God that loves us and does only good things for us and has no lack of resources. And yet we seem to think we have a lack of resources. So is there something wrong with our thinking? I would submit to you we're thinking very badly. Anytime we think we have a lack of resources, we have missed a reality here. And that reality is that God has all the resources at his fingertips. If you don't have what you perceive you need, there's a reason for it. And maybe you need to look in the mirror and ask the Lord what's going on in me. And I need, a better, I need an alignment check with you to get it lined up with what you're doing so I can see reality the way you see it. We have to remember the real test is will we line up with God. In fact, the real test is will we live by the word of God. Notice what Matthew seven twenty four says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When we live by the word of God, when we practice the truth of the word of God, we are like the wise man. We are building our house on the rock, on Christ on something secure, something that will never fail, something that will always be there for us. That's the only way to have security in life, is to build your life on Christ. Abraham declared this. He declared, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. And this is Genesis 22, verse 14. The Lord is our provider. He is our source. He declared this at a time when he was under a command from God to sacrifice his own son. But yet he knew some way or another God would provide in that very difficult circumstance. The fifth key to prosperity in God's universe in the midst of a depression is to work as unto the Lord. Perform with excellence exemplary of Christ. Notice Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, this particular translation needs a little help here. This word "deed" is the Greek word "ergon," and the Greek word "ergon" refers to all kinds of work, all all, in all kinds of industries, artistic work, construction work, agricultural work. You know. retail work, banking, investments, any kind of work you can think of, that's included in that word. So a better translation is probably word or work. We tend to think of the word deed in terms of like being a good Boy Scout. Boy Scouts do good deeds, and we don't think of it in terms of the workplace. He's talking about how you live in the workplace. Whatever you do in the workplace, whether speaking to people, Or work activity of any sort do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Uh, a, a good reminder of this reality is to have a stamp on your desk and have the stamp embossed so it says this work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus and then everything that you do every phone conversation every meeting every email every letter every report everything that you do figuratively or literally take out the stamp and stamp it this work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus that gives you a different mindset for the quality of work that God desires us to do he wants us to reflect Christ in everything we do so many people don't get that I was talking to one of my clients the other day and he was sharing with me about a friend of his that he'd been talking to about strategic life alignment and this man had said, well, I don't think God has any specific purpose for me. My, my job is to, uh, to evangelize and to be ethical and to make money. And then, of course, ties so that we can, the church can do kingdom activities. And that's a very common perspective out there today. It does not reflect an understanding of Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17 says, what you do matters to God and how you do it matters to God. So we need to be very diligent and very faithful about doing our work in the name of the Lord Jesus. A few verses later in Colossians 3.23, it says we're to do it with such integrity that we need to view God as our boss. Now that's a very startling reality. Look what Colossians 3.23 says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Wow. I've got to begin to realize that I, I will give an account to God for my work. He's not going to sit there and hear, hear me pontificate about all the money I did, I, I gave to support missions, all the times that I went to visitation, all the times that I prayed for people at church, all the times that I, you know, set the pastor on vacations or gave him special gifts, all the times I showed up for church meetings. That's really not going to be very important. What he's going to want to know is, how did you do your work? Did you reflect me? Did you work as unto me? Did you realize that I'm inspecting your work, and you're going to present it to me, and I want it to reflect my son? That's what's really going to count in the kingdom, and that's how he views work. So we need to begin to work as unto the Lord. And remember this, success is not money. Jesus said this in the high priestly prayer in John seventeen four, right before his his crucifixion, this is before his ultimate destiny, he says this about his life and about success. I have brought you glory, referring to the Father, on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus denominated success in terms of obedience he died broke now i'm not saying that god is calling you to die bro- die broke the, the proverbs talk about the wisdom of storing up treasures of choice food and oil that is a very a wise man does that but in the case of jesus he didn't need that because god is in to give us given us what we need to do what we're called to do you know we're all caught up with getting wealthy and being rich god is caught, caught up in us obeying him that's what he wants and so he provides us what we need to do what we're called to do and that's really what provision is and that's what prosperity is when you have what you need to call do, do what you're called to do you are prospering and we need to really get it that is the reality of life i was talking to one of my clients this afternoon he was reflecting back on the year and he said you know this is the worst year we've had in a long time i said really well tell me about it he says well we we this is the least amount of money I can ever remember making. I said, so you're denominating success in terms of money. And he stopped and paused for a second. And I asked him, I said, what's real success? And then we talked about John seventeen four. And then he began to reflect on spiritually what had happened to him, his family, and his business over the past year. And he realized this had been the most rich year he had ever had because he had more profound revelation about God and about Christ, and, he, and that he received that this year, and he incorporated that into his life. And he says, yeah, you're right. I traded up. I traded money for real riches. And that you can't buy real riches. That comes from the transforming power of Christ working through you. Okay, the sixth key to prosperity and depression is keep your options open. Ecclesiastes 11, verses 5 through 6. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. And what this is saying is that we have very limited ability to perceive what God is going to do. Now, that should not keep us from seeking to do that. We should always seek to understand what God is wanting to do. But we need to recognize we are limited in our ability. And so because we're limited, we need to be aggressive about about keeping our options open. You know, I I frequently run into people that would would claim that they have the ability to hear God well. Well. Uh, sadly, often this is the case with pastors and not, it's not exclusive. I hear it with all kinds of people, but more often I tend to hear it with pastors and I frequently challenge that. Why do you think that you hear God so clearly and they're convinced that they do? And then we start inspecting what's going on in their lives and we discover, well, things are never going quite like they thought they would go. And why is that? Well, because they see through a glass darkly. We all see through a glass darkly. We all have limited ability to discern well. We can discern to some degree. We have the word of God that gives us a lot of revelation. We have the Holy Spirit that guides us, and we have a level of discernment through that. But we do not have perfect discernment. So we have got to be willing to keep our options open. So that means don't burn your bridges. That's a very common problem today. People decide, I'm out of here, I'm through with this, I'm done with this, I'm gone. They burn bridges. Don't ever burn bridges, whether it's with a church, with a person, with a business, with a business owner, with other people. Try not to burn bridges. You never know when you may need to go back across that bridge. And and finally, do not presume that you hear God clearly. Always, always, always recognize we are limited. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says this. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. In other words, God knows me so well right now. He knows everything about me to the nth degree down to counting the hairs of my head. And I know some of you are saying you don't have any hair on your head. Well, I do have a little bit. I got some fuzz. So God knows me that detailed. I will know him in that kind of detail someday. That's what it means. Then shall I know even as also I am known. But right now, I don't know at that level. I am limited in what I know right now. So the way that I have the best opportunity to discern what God is saying to me is by being in community with my wife, being in community with C4 advisors, being in community with godly men and women who are helping me hear and discern the will of God for my life. So... Keep your options open. Keep your ears open. Let God speak to you in many different ways. The seventh and final key is the the secret to answering any question in life, to solving any problem, is the famous ask, seek, knock process. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We have a Father that wants to give us good things, and that will give us good things. All we have to do is line up with him and follow his process. So the first step in the process is we ask, we pray, we seek his face. We seek understanding from the word of God, from talking to fellow believers. We ask, we humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, I need wisdom and discernment. I need truth from you. And then as we, are, we stay in that state of prayer, we begin to evaluate options. We begin to talk to people. We research, we seek out. we we discern what it is that the relevant facts that that surround this situation that we're in, the circumstances, what are the factors that play into this? And finally, as we begin, as we walk along this process of asking and seeking, we'll find a door, and we need to knock on the door and see if this is the provision of God to solve that particular circumstance. So this is a universal methodology. No matter what problem you have in life, You can bring the ask, seek, knock methodology to it, and you can have success in discerning the will of God for your life. Well, let's summarize what we've been talking about here. The seven keys to success in a depression, the seven keys to prospering in a down economy. Number one is to realize that God is not surprised. He is absolutely in the middle of what's going on because God is in reality, and he sets up reality so that he can transform us, so that he can mature us, so he can make us more like his son. That's his agenda, is to trade up, trade worldly wealth for true riches. Don't worship idols. The world all around us, our culture culture is full of idol worship. We're as idolatrous as the pagan Romans were, as the Greeks were. They were polytheistic, they were pluralistic, They were hedonistic. We have all that stuff going on in our culture across this planet in the United States today. Even in our churches, we have idol worship going on. And I know that may sound like a hard word, but I challenge you to really look and ask the question, in whatever church you're in, what are we really worshiping here? And if you're sensing idol worship going on, you need to be aggressive about seeking to not get caught up in that and really be, be seeking to worship the one true God. Remember, the Lord is the only security in life. There is no other rock to build your life on except Christ. And one of the key ways that you you build your life on the rock is you work as unto the Lord. Everything you do should bear the stamp of Christ. Every conversation, every word, every deed, every action, every email, every report, every interaction should bear Christ. Keep your options open. Recognize that you don't hear as clearly as you think. That we all are limited in our ability to discern the will of God. We discern best as we line up with the Word of God, as we line up with wise counsel from advisors. And finally, engage in the ask, seek, knock process. This is God's divine problem-solving methodology. Aggressively use that in your life to approach Every problem that you come in contact with. And remember, all of these seven keys can be summed up into one. And that is, Christ is the ultimate key. He is the solution. I was talking to another client recently, and this client wants to send grain to Africa to feed the Africans. And I said, well, that's a great thing. It's a noble thing. But what is it the Africans really need? And, you know, he kind of paused. He didn't know quite how to answer that. I said, what they really need is Christ. You yeah, know, they, they, they need something in their belly so you can could, you could share Christ with them. But if you don't share Christ with them, if they don't get Christ, then next month they're going to need grain again. And next month. And next year. And ten years from now. There's no end of it because sin produces poverty. Only Christ produces prosperity. So the key is to get people Christ, this is the same thing for Wall Street. What's the solution for Wall Street? The United States government thinks the solution is sin management, more regulation, more restrictions, money. That's not the real solution. The real solution is Christ, because we got sin run amuck in Wall Street, sin run amuck in our banking and financial institutions, sin run amuck in our invest investment world. And until we bring Christ to that, we will never ultimately solve it. We will just go around the mountain again and again because sin management doesn't work in the long run. It can have some temporary success, but ultimately it will not work. The ultimate solution to sin is always Christ. And so Colossians three twenty three, excuse me, three two, chapter two, verses two and three really illustrates this point. Christ is the repository of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What we need to solve every problem in life, any problem, in any circumstance, is wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the repository of wisdom and knowledge. So Wall Street needs Christ. Africa needs Christ. Our government needs Christ. Our churches need Christ. Our businesses need Christ. Our families need Christ. Every scenario you can think of Christ is the solution to long-term prosperity in that situation. No matter how difficult, how challenging, how hard the situation is, Christ is the ultimate key. So Lord, give us the grace to hear that, to receive it, and to walk in that reality. So these principles are taught in the SLA seminar. Hopefully they're not new to you. Hopefully these are a refresher to you. And hopefully it's a time of refocusing you on the the reality of Christ being the core of your life.